pray together. God, our founder of all good, we acknowledge before you that we have so often pride, we have lofty thoughts of ourselves, and, and so, Lord, we pray that you would destroy our lofty thoughts, that you would break down our pride, that you would take away every shred of self-righteousness within us. We ask that you give us spirits of humility, that we would have a sense of our own sin, that we would have the, the tears that are flowing from repentance and not from shame or guilt, but from knowing that we are forgiven in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would break us and that you would bind us up by your spirit. Lord, we pray that, that we would know your presence with us, dwelling in us. Um, Father, that we would know your presence in Christ through the spirit, that we would know the, the Trinity, three persons at work in our hearts and our lives and our redemption, uh, in the, the nitty-gritty details of our daily life. And, and Father, we, on this Independence Day, the 4th of July, we thank you for this nation. We're, we're thankful that we can be here in a, a public space, publicly worshiping you as our Lord and Redeemer. Lord, we are thank you for those who have uh, fought and died for the, the freedoms that we experience in this nation. Lord, we know that, that we are, are not a perfect na nation by any means, and we never have been a perfect nation, but yet we thank you for the, the good that you have worked through this country, Lord. But we pray for the, our future. We, we pray for spiritual renewal and revival. That, that you would draw the, the hearts of the, the father and the son, the, the mother and the daughter, the, uh, that, that, that our nation as a whole would be brought back to uh, their knees in repentance to the foot of the cross, and that we would see our need for, for Christ, that we can't do it on our own, that, that the religion of the Bible isn't some sort of outmoded religion that is um, un, not not relevant for our lives or at worst is um, hostile to human flourishing, Lord, but that we would see that the religion of the Bible is, is not ultimately religion in any other form, but the relationship with you that's opened up through Jesus, and that we'd see that as deeply relevant, Lord. And as I uh, mentioned earlier in this service, we uh, think of certain liberties that we enjoy, but Lord, we thank you for Christian liberty, that that we have freedom as Christians, not freedom to sin, but freedom to love, freedom to serve, uh, freedom to not be bound to long lists of rules and reg regulations to earn your favor, but um, the, the, the freedom to, to worship you in spirit and in truth because of what Jesus has done for us. And we pray all this in his name and, and pray as he taught us, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So you could grab a, a pew Bible near you, or grab your own Bible, or look in the bulletin where the scripture passage is printed there. 
We're going to be looking today at Hosea chapter 7. And this is a a difficult chapter. I'll even say that up front before I I read it. Um, One of the commentaries that I looked at on this chapter said, without question, this text is among the most vexing texts in the Hebrew Bible. And so whenever you read that in a commentary, of course, they say that in lots of passages. Commentaries love to say that it's the most difficult, and I don't know if you can really rate them. But I think that, that we can probably agree, as we work through this, that this is a, a difficult passage. And you might say, well, why spend time on a difficult passage? I mean, we're, it's the 4th of July. It's a day where a lot of people are traveling. Uh, and it seems like, of all the things to talk about, why Hosea 7? And I think the first reason for that flows out of our commitment to biblical authority, that the Bible is the word of God, that the Bible is truthful, and everything God intends to teach about himself and the world, it's the inerrant word of God without error, and therefore all of the Bible is relevant for our lives, that the Bible is breathed out by God, all of scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we can be equipped for every good work of the Christian life. But I think another reason, a second reason, um, flows out of something that I really hope everyone at Hope Church and every Christian will do is is to read through the Bible cover to cover. Not just to do that once, but to do that maybe once a year or every two years or every three years. Uh, There's not a legalistic rule about how often to do it, but for us to be whole Bible Christians to not be Christians who only focus on certain parts of the Bible or focus on just our favorite texts that we read over and over again, but to be moving through all of Scripture. And what will happen often is that churches can take the easy path, I think, and focus on the easy passages, uh, the passages that, that are, are easy to hear, easy to preach. And therefore, when Christians actually read through the Bible— They encounter all kinds of confusing stuff, and they get the impression that only the the easy parts of the Bible are relevant for the Christian life and not also the the difficult parts. And so that's why we do the hard work week in and week out of of diving into the easy and the hard passages of Scripture. And so with with all of that in mind, uh, let's turn, as I said, to Hosea chapter 7. And last week, we looked at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 7, flowing out of chapter 6. So I'm going to pick up reading in verse 3, that they've just been talking about this general evil in the land of Israel. And the they in here is talking about the, the common people in Israel. So verse 3, by their evil, they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes become sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. 
All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they are not turned to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heaven. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the entire Bible. We thank you that the entire Bible is breathed out by God. And so in a difficult book, in a difficult chapter, Lord, we expect you to to speak and to, to show up and to impact our lives and our hearts through your word that never comes back void. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're the, the type of person who, who takes notes, this is the, the outline of what we're going to be looking at today, that we're going to look at the problem, the imagery, and then the application. But... Don't be confused, because we're actually going to do that outline twice. That we're going to look at the problem, the imagery, and the application in verse 3 to 7. That's the the first section of this text. And that section is really speaking about the leaders of Israel. And then we'll go back and we'll look at those headings again. We'll look at the, the problem, the imagery, the application of verse 8 to 16. And so in that section, he's turning from the leaders to the people of Israel. And so let's begin then at the very beginning with the problem, the problem in this first section. Look at verse 3 there in your Bible. By their evil, they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. So this is saying that the king of Israel... And Israel had many kings at this time because they kept assassinating each other. Uh, the, the king and his princes 
we're actively encouraging evil. It's saying by, by the, the evil of the common people, the king was made glad. So instead of being the one who punishes evil, the king was the one who celebrated evil. And one of the, the best commentaries on Hosea by a guy named Derek Kidner says, now we penetrate the palace to find the king and his courtiers not only doing, doing nothing to stem the tide of evil, but reveling in it, titillated by it, relishing the prevailing graft and trickery, letting their lusts take over. And even that description of leaders might remind you of leaders in our world today as well. But look at what else we see here as the, the problem with these leaders in verse 5. It says that on the day of our king, the princess becomes sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. So the day of the king might be the day of his birthday or maybe the day of his coronation. And it says that the princes, the courtiers, those in the court of the king are becoming drunk. They're having these riotous drinking parties. And they're, they're leading the king into their debauchery. And it says that the king himself is stretching out his hand with scoffers. As Psalm 1 talks about, he's walking, sitting, standing in the way of scoffers. And we read in Proverbs 31 that it is not for kings to drink wine or for the rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. That clearly the, neither the court nor the king are following the wisdom of Proverbs, which they probably had in their possession at that time. Uh, they're, they're not heeding what is right, what is true. But then there's another problem in verse 4. Maybe this is summarizing all of the problems, but it says that they are all adulterers. Every single one of them is an adulterer. And that may be, and probably is, talking about literal adultery, literal sexual immorality being practiced within the court of the king of Israel. But then it also is probably this spiritual adultery that has been the great theme of the book of Hosea, that they're committing spiritual adultery by worshiping and serving other gods. And so that's the, the problem here with these leaders of Israel. They're encouraging, celebrating evil, they're constantly drunk, and they're actively practicing adultery, sexual immorality, both physically and spiritually. But now we move from the, the problem to the imagery. And I really wanted to think about the imagery here on its own terms because that's part of what's confusing about this passage, but also really beautiful, that it has, it's packed with so much strong imagery. Look at verse 4. It says that they are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. And so the prophet here is comparing these leaders in the court of Israel to an oven, this superheated oven that they would use to bake bread. And from all of the descriptions I read of this, it it reminds me of something like one of the pizza ovens that you would see in a, 
a restaurant, some sort of brick or ceramic structure that you can heat wood in. It becomes very hot, and you have to spend a long time heating it up, but then it holds its heat for a long time so that you can bake within it. And what it's saying here is that the people of Israel, these leaders, are like the coals in the heated oven. And instead of having to stir the coals, if you ever had wood heat in your home, you stir the coals to really get them going often. But they didn't need any help. They needed no outside influence that within their heart they had enough lust, enough sin to keep them burning. They didn't need anything from the outside. But then this imagery is picked up again in verse 6. It says, For with hearts like an oven they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. And that image reminds me of a camping trip with my brother this spring, but we were in the New Mexican desert, and it's so dry there that we had a campfire that night. We were like good campers, and we put out the fire with water. And then very unusual in New Mexico, it rained a little bit in the night, but it's just so dry, it just immediately absorbs everything. And then when we woke up in the morning, I saw one coal down at the bottom of the fire, and I just gently blew on it, and immediately it burst into flames, and within a minute we had this roaring fire again, which would never happen with all the humidity and moisture in the East Coast, and it really blew me away. But that's what it's saying here that these people are like, that, that they're like an oven that you can leave it smoldering all night, but instead of going out, the moment you open the door, the moment there's any air that comes in, immediately it bursts into flames again. And that's the way that they were in their sin, that, that they could sleep through the night, and most of the time you sleep off what you're concerned about the night before to one degree or another. If you're angry, you generally wake up less angry. But it's saying that, that the, after sleeping on it, that they wake up with more anger, more Less, that, they, that, that their sleep is only making it worse in their condition. But then look at verse 7. This is where we, we top off this image of the oven. It says that all of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. And that, that reminds me of the, the furnace in Daniel. Remember that the king tried to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, but he was so hot that the people who tried to throw them in perished in the flames of the, the furnace. And it's saying that they're so supercharged with their, their heat, this heat of sin and rebellion and lust that eventually it's going to consume the king completely. As I said, that's what happened over and over again at this time. One commentary says that, of the six men who reigned in those 30 years in the time of Hosea, four were assassins and only one died in his bed. That this sin eventually did consume the king himself. You can read about this in 2 Kings 15. And so we've seen the problem. We've seen this imagery of the furnace in the text. But look at the, the application. And of course, application is where you can go a lot of different directions. And I actually adjusted and changed slightly what I was going to talk about here this morning. That, that originally when I was reflecting on this picture, I was thinking, 
leaders who cause other people to sin, who revel in sin. Don't so many of our leaders do that? You can think of religious leaders or political leaders or economic leaders or cultural leaders, just the amount that, that sin is openly celebrated in our society. And so you could have an extended conversation about that, and I was about to, to do that. And that could be a, a, a worthwhile conversation. But then I realized that that if you spend all the time talking about the leaders, you would think, okay, the problem is really out there. But, but the problem is not just out there with the, our leaders. But according to this, the problem is right here within our own hearts. That we are susceptible to the influence of leaders because of the, the furnace that burns in our own lives. And so often we are the leaders in our own family, in our own communities, who are the ones who are leading others astray, who are celebrating evil, who have that, that furnace burning within that will just break out at any moment in, in anger or frustration or lust, that will respond to any kind of stimulus not in the way that God calls us to respond. And that's why the Bible says that you must be born again, that unless you are born again, that you cannot see the kingdom of God. And what God does is he brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life as he takes this, this hot furnace that is, is burning with sin and lust and rebellion against God. And then he transforms it into a heart of, of flesh, uh, but not a heart that is cold, but a heart that then burns with love for Christ, that, that with no outside influence it will it will continue to, to burn with love for Christ, that we sleep through the night and we wake up loving Jesus more. That's the kind of heart that we long for God to work within us. And that is what we need even before, when we should pray that, that our leaders would not be like the leaders of Israel here in our text. But before we even look to that, we look for God to change our own hearts, to, that we wouldn't have hearts like the leaders here. So again, we've looked at the, the problem, the imagery, and the application. But now we're going to move into this second section of the text. Remember we said that the first part, verse 3 to 7, is talking about the, the leaders. But then it starts to turn to the, the people themselves in verse 8 to 16. So look at the, the problem in this section, verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. That instead of saying separate from the surrounding nations as God commanded them, it, it says that they're, they're mixing with the surrounding nations, that they're, they're taking on their religious practices, their moral ideology. And one commentary said that the church in every age knows this temptation and tends to meet it either by retreating into itself or melding into its surroundings. And I think we know that, that temptation to, to simply follow, to, to, to mix our thinking and our ideology and our, our religion with just what we see around us in the surrounding culture. That's what Israel was doing. But then notice another problem in verse 9. It says that strangers devoured his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. This reminds me of Samson, the great warrior in the book of Judges, who when he was going out after his hair had been cut to face the Philistines, it says that 
that he did not know that the Lord had left him. That he thought he still had his strength in the Lord, but the Lord had left him and he didn't even realize it. And that here, the people are facing the, the judgment of God against them. The, the things that they're, that they're suffering are from the hand of God. Strangers devour his strength, but he knows it not. They're, they have no sense of the, the feeling of what is going on. And, and you think of this, you, you hear of people who lur- lose nerve sensitivity in their, their hands or their feet, and they're unable to take their hand away when it's being burned. And it's a serious condition that as much as we hate pain, uh, that pain actually is a gift because it prevents our body from being damaged in, in all sorts of ways. But here that the, the people of Israel have no spiritual nerve endings, that they're, they're insensitive to what is actually happening to them, and so they can't move away, they can't change, they can't move away from the, this flame of the, the judgment of God. But then look at, at verse 10 as well. You say, well, what is the root of this problem? And it says that pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord nor seek him for all of this. And isn't it true that, that pride is the, the greatest danger that we face? We talked about wicked leaders in the first section. We think often that it's wicked leaders that would be the greatest danger, but the greatest danger is our own pride because it's our own pride that makes us think that we can work our way up to God by our own strength. It's our own pride that makes us think that we're, that we're good enough. It's our own pride that thinks we can just figure things out, piece it all together, that, that pride is never something to, to admire, to celebrate, that, that it is one of the greatest dangers for our lives that, that, that we should always strive for humility. And so again, we see here this, this problem, this pride, this mixing with the nations, this insensitivity to what is actually coming upon them. And that's the problem. But now let's go to the problem to the imagery in this section. And in the first section, it was the oven that was this controlling image. But here... Isaiah, or sorry, um, Hosea brings all of these images. Uh, he just sprinkles imagery through here like a, a really good poet that he is. And so the people of Israel are like a cake. In verse 8 it says, Ephraim is a cake not turned. If you've ever cooking a pancake and you think of it, it's on the, the pan and you, it still is dough on the top, but then you left it too long, you flip it, it's burned on the other side. So you have dough on one side and black crisp on the other side. And he's saying that is what Israel is like, that they are like an unturned cake, that they're, they're unbalanced in their religion, they're, they're inconsistent. Another commentary said, how can we better describe a half-fed people, a half-cultured people, a half-lived religion, a half-hearted policy than by a half-baked scone? Of course, that was a British commentary. But, uh, so this, this half-baked scone, that's what they are like. But then here's the, the second image that we see here, that these Israelites were like a dove. Verse 11, Ephraim... Is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, 
They will spread over them a net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. And so here he's calling them a dove. And usually in scripture, the, the dove is a positive image. We want to be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. But here it seems that, that Israel is seeking to be innocent as doves, but they're not as wise as serpents, that they're, they're naive. That in their, in their desire for peace with the surrounding nations, they're, they're going and trying to make these alliances with Assyria, with Egypt. And, and God is saying that they're a dove trying to make peace with the surrounding nations, but instead I have a net, and I'm going to catch them in the net of my judgment like a bird caught in a net. But then look at this final image here in our text. It says they are like a treacherous bow. Verse 16, that they return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of their insolence of their tongue. And they, this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Now, I was trying to understand what a treacherous bow would be. And, and I think the best that I could imagine is almost something that would seem humorous at the, at the start, something that almost you could use as a prank against someone else, where the bow is set up in such a way that, that instead of shooting its arrow forward, it shoots the arrow backward, uh, and, and it hits you in the face. But that wouldn't, it, it, that it, they, we, in one sense, the, the image can be humorous, and I think it's supposed even to be humorous here that they're a treacherous bow. But then the humorous image turns in this dark sense of that they're seeking to shoot the, the arrows at those around them, but the arrow's going to be turned back on them. That it's, it's an arrow that's a boomerang, that the arrow's going to come back upon them, that they're the ones that are going to have the arrow. They're going to face the judgment of God in the end. And so here we see this, this problem, this imagery. But now we'll, we'll wrap up with this final application. And again, we could go a lot of ways in the application of this section. But I want to focus on verse 14. It says, They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. That language of, of wailing upon your bed. Such strong language. Almost reminds me of a child wailing on his bed, complaining because he's not getting his way. And I was, I was helped, actually, in reflecting on this by a book that Grace used, actually, for some church planter wives training. It was a, a book written for the wives of church planters. And it actually developed kind of a self-counseling paradigm based on this verse from Hosea. And it, and it really stuck with me, and that's one reason I remembered it, because they had a cartoon image of this child wailing on the bed. Uh, and so I think that's why I, I thought of that when I was working on this, this sermon. And this is the, the basic idea, is that in life that we have desires. Here it talks about them desiring grain. Uh, we desire food, shelter, the essentials, but we desire far more than that. And that sometimes our, the way to our desires is blocked for whenever, whatever reason, that God blocks our ability to get the thing that we want. 
And then at that moment, you can make what, what they call either a left turn or you can make a right turn. And so the left turn is where you say, I want something. My ability to get what I want is blocked. And so what I'm going to do is retreat into darkness and I'm going to wail on my bed. I'm going to complain. I'm going to moan. I'm going to be incredibly upset. But then it says that they do not cry to the Lord from the heart. And that happens when we don't then turn to the Lord in repentance. We wail on our beds at night, but we don't call out to the Lord. And this was from that book. It says, we fail to take sin seriously. We're motivated by fear and not love. We are sorrowful and only about the consequences we suffered, not the pain we caused. And therefore, we feel only torment. We wail on our beds. But then you could rewind back to the beginning. So that was the, the left turn. But then the right turn is, once again, we have desires that for whatever reason, those desires are blocked by the providence of God. But then we actually respond more like Psalm 4 that says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. And so there, there's this response to, to anger of you're on the bed again, but instead of wailing on your bed, it says that you are silent before the Lord. And out of that, that silence comes this, this heart of repentance as we cry out to the Lord from the heart. And we begin to experience the fruit of repentance, that we become willing to wait. We anticipate rescue with delight. We rest. We become willing to engage others. We lose our defensiveness, impatience, rigidity. We become willing to hear how we harm others as we enter into the path of reconciliation. And we become grateful and free of self-condemnation. That's the right path that we follow. And it wasn't the path that the Israelites followed here in our text as they wailed upon their bed, as they gashed themselves in the practices of the Canaanites around them. But then you look just back in the verse before, Hosea 7, verse 13, God says, I would redeem them. And that is the promise that God always has before us as well, that he would redeem us. And he will redeem anyone who turns to him in repentance and faith, that, that cries out to him in the, the darkness on their, their bed. And that, that's why it says, knock, and it will be open to you. Seek, and you will find that, that the, the offer is there as God works in regeneration, bringing us from death to life, turning the furnace of sin into a furnace of, of joy and love in the Lord, that we respond in repentance and faith, and our sin is counted to Jesus on the cross. His righteousness is counted to us. And, and the reality for us becomes then the opposite of Hosea 7. And all, all of this is possible because of what we see here in this meal, that Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed, that, that he, as he was preparing to suffer and die in the cross, didn't simply wail on his bed, but he cried out to the Lord from the heart, Lord, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. 
but not my will, but your will be done. Knowing that God would redeem him, and God ultimately did in raising him from the dead into newness of life.